So glad you guys are here. Welcome if you're new. Glad you guys are here. Um, hang out a little bit afterwards. I usually go back toward the back and say hi to new people. So if you'd like to meet me and, and connect at all, love to do that. Um, but I'm hoping you've enjoyed the service already as we kind of jump into the end of a series. You kind of caught it at the end, but uh, all of our messages are online. So if you want to come or go check out some of those um, uh, messages we preached previously. Uh, so lots of good material, not just for me, but other uh, communicators in our church. Um, but we've been doing a series recently for the last six weeks or so. This is the sixth week called Follow. And obviously it's about um, being a disciple. It's about making disciples what Jesus meant when he called us to follow him. So we've been talking into that. We talked about are you a fan or a follower? And, and we said surrender was the clue to deciding which one of those you are. So if you're not surrendered to Jesus, there's a good chance you're just a, you're just a fan but maybe not a follower. And then we talked about some prodigal sons, and so often when we uh, talk about the prodigal son, we forget there were two sons involved, and the fascinating thing about that story was that uh, one was sinful and reckless, one was pious and religious, but neither one of them knew who their father was. And so if you're going to follow Jesus, part of what he, he called us to follow him into is into a relationship with the father. We talked about disciple and discipler, how you can't really fully call yourself a disciple until you start making disciples. You can be a disciple and begin discipleship, but the end game that Jesus called us in Matthew 28 was to, uh, to be- become a disciple maker as well. And we talked about environments. We talked last week about hearing God and how important that was uh, in following Jesus and how he taught us and modeled that. And in this message this morning, I want to talk about what it means to be like Jesus, to make dis- disciples like Jesus and make disciples like Jesus. And I've repeated it twice, but you'll understand why I said it twice here in just a second. So uh, obviously today um, is Palm Sunday. Um, We're getting ready for next weekend for Easter. It's going to be exciting. Uh, David Woodham, one of our communicators, is going to be preaching actually on that Sunday morning. It's going to be an exciting time. And so he's been prepping for that, talking about the story of us and how we're all connected into the story. You know, there's one big story. There's a big narrative that Jesus, um, the Bible talks about him being uh, this, the lamb was being slain before the foundations of time. So the story started way before the Garden of Eden, way before that. And the plan that God had for our lives started way before we, we were ever even thought of by our mom and dad. But we were thought of by the Lord. So we're going to talk about that. But as we kind of jump into this, Palm Sunday, Jesus surprised the disciples. One, when he, he surprised them all the time, constantly. I'm going to talk about three big surprises here in just a second. But one of the first ones was when he came riding into the city of Jerusalem, their expectation was he was going to ride in on a white horse, on a stallion, because that's what, that's what conquering warriors and conquering generals did. And they made the assumption, they read into Jesus that he was coming in, in many ways the way so many prophetic words had given about who the Messiah was going to be. And they saw the conquering hero before they saw the suffering servant. And Jesus was about to surprise them, in, I mean, just in so many ways. And so he comes riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, not on a stallion, but on a donkey. Lowly, the Bible calls it. And he was fulfilling prophecy when that happened. So it's really interesting how that worked. But there were several other surprises. First, Jesus started by showing up and asking ordinary men to become his disciples. That was a surprise. <laughs> Normally, uh, rabbis called the, you know, the higher-ups, the elites, the, the people who had potential. Well, I don't know if you ever read about Peter. and He didn't have any potential whatsoever, at least anybody that anybody could see besides Peter, right? <laughs> but uh, Jesus saw something in him and saw something in us and sees something in us that so often we don't see. Um, the second surprise happened right after that. Jesus 
dies. He comes in. You know, we know the story next week. We're going to preach into this. Jesus dies, and they were not ready for that. They were, again, the fact that Jesus was going to die on the cross, even Peter, when Jesus invites him into the family and starts talking about how he's the rock, you know, he's no longer a pebble, he's a rock. And man, it was so exciting to invite him into this family that Jesus had. And then the next thing that Peter says is, you know, Jesus talks about going to the cross, and Peter said, No, no, Lord, you don't get to do that. And, and Jesus said, listen, several times he said that. One, when he was washing his feet, and Peter said, you can't wash my feet. And Jesus said, if you don't let me do this, you can't have a part of me. You have to submit and surrender, Peter, right? And so Peter was like, no, you can't go to the cross. And Jesus literally said, get behind me, Satan. He said, you're thinking, you're not thinking like the invited son that I just talked to a few minutes ago. You're thinking worldly, and you're thinking wrong, and you're missing it. And it surprised Peter when all this happened. And thirdly, there was a, another surprise up his sleeve, um, and that's this. When Jesus gets finished, he rises from the dead. Again, next, next week we're going to talk a lot about that. But he rises from the dead. He's about to leave. And the Bible says, he, he said this in another place. He said, I, I must go away so the Spirit can come. What I did in just one person in the body of a man modeling how to listen and how to obey the Father, what that looked like, I have taught you that and modeled it to you. And now, because the Holy Spirit's going to come and dwell inside of you, I'm going to be in every single one of you guys. And here's the surprise. What I've done, I'm done. The rest of this, go in in the world, what you thought I was going to do, riding in on the stallion, you're going to do that. I mean, you guys know that was, that was an awakening. That was a moment to say, uh, I'm not sure I'm ready for this. I know I spent uh, three years with Jesus, but I'm not sure that I'm ready for this. But Jesus surprised them in so many ways. And so often in the modern church, that's a surprise to you and I, that we're the ones who are called to finish the work of Jesus. Now, I have to be careful when I say that because the work of Jesus is finished. And I preach into that all the time. We always keep that, spa- that plate spinning, the concept of grace and the gospel and what Jesus did on the cross and how we are the recipients of that when we put our faith and our trust in him. So I'm not advocating at all that we have to go and add to something Jesus has done. That's not what I'm talking about. But the works we do, we have been invited into doing because Jesus has done a work in us. Amen? So it's helpful to understand that. So just a couple of things. Making disciples like Jesus, what does that look like? And the disciples needed to look like something. So when making disciples that look like Jesus, and that's the call that Matthew 28 has given us about making disciples. We've been talking about that for six weeks now. And so they need to look like something. So Jesus, when he would model this, he would model two things in front of the disciples. He would model his character, who he was, who God, who, who, who he was in his identity, and how he operated, his morality, his character, everything about him and how he connected and how he was um, um, connected so intimately to the Father. And the second thing is he had competency or skills. Two kinds, really. There's, there's more, but two kinds that really he had. One was he had a skill set of leadership. He led them somewhere that the Father was taking them. He said, look, this is how we're doing it. This, this is the methodology. I hear what the Father says to me, and I say it. I see what the Father is doing, and I do it. That's the skill of leadership. And then the, comp- the other aspect of competency was to walk in the power and the demonstration of God's Spirit in their day. And that's something that we want to lean into. So 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 says something, it's, sh- it's such a short scripture, but it's powerful. This is Paul talking to, to disciples, and he said, imitate me just as I imitate Christ. And I've said this numerous times. We are so fearful in the modern day church to say, I have disciples. Paul had disciples. Peter had disciples. Timothy had disciples. You as a disciple, you need to have disciples. And if you don't know who those disciples are, the question then comes back, are you a disciple? 
Because if you aren't having disciples, if you had, aren't making disciples like Jesus commanded us, there's a good sign that you don't think you're qualified, which, which is a grace question, and you don't think you're qualified, which is a skills and a competency question, and that's, that last part is learned. But it's a decision, an intentional decision that you have to make to move into that. So in the modern church, um, we are representing Jesus, representing Jesus, or representing presenting him, and often we get it wrong, and the world has a, a skewed view of who God is, who Jesus is, of course. And so there's a, a famous saying that's attributed to Mahatma Gandhi. He said, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Now think about that for a second. I like your Christ. He couldn't find anything wrong with Jesus when he saw who he was in Scripture, but he said, I don't like your Christians. And he said, this is why. Your Christians are so unlike Christ. See, that's the challenge we have as a modern-day believers. Is are, does the life we're living reflect who Jesus is? And I'm not talking about perfection. I said this to somebody not too long ago. There, there's a difference between perfection and maturity. Perfection is unattainable. That the whole point of the law was to show you that you are a lawbreaker. That the whole point of the law is that God is perfect. You are not. <laughs> right? So when you get that, the Bible says the law becomes a schoolmaster, a teacher, a tutor that takes you and helps you understand who Jesus was and what he, what he did. The, the, the biggest way to understand it is that he shows you your need for a Savior. And until you see your need for a Savior, you will never submit your life to him. You will keep trying to accomplish works and doing things in your own power and in your own strength and in your own morality to try to accomplish something with God that Jesus has given you for free. So it's a powerful statement. We understand this, that we're re representing, we're representing Jesus. And again, one reason why, there's a couple reasons. One big reason is we're so busy trying to be like Jesus that we're not being with Jesus. So there's this really fascinating um, scripture. I mean, we've, we've heard it's John, uh, John 15, I believe it is, and it talks about the vine. And so Jesus talks about this in a way that's really, 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 really interesting. Because here's the thing. I don't, I don't know if you've done this, but I've tried to be Jesus-y to people. Have you ever done that, tried to be Jesus-y? <laughs> so I'm like, you know, I'm, I know I'm representing Jesus, so I'm striving and I focus on how I need to be like Jesus. And so I think about his attributes and I think about his inclusivity and I think about his love for people and I'm like, oh, I want to do that so bad. And so I find myself, if I'm not careful, pulling myself back underneath the law. And so I remember the scripture that Jesus said, and we talked about this in Matthew 5. Jesus said, you know, um, um, here's, here's what the law and the prophets can be wrapped up in. Very simple, simple command. Love God with all your heart, your mind, your soul. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so we get busy going, I'm going to love God with all, your, all my heart and all my mind. No, you're not. That is the law. And you're not going to do it. And I know that's challenging to some of us because we've heard it so many times. But when you begin to say that, you, you, what you're saying is, in my own strength, I'm going to show God how much I love him. No, you're not. The Bible says we love him. Why? Because he Loved us. And see, the, the way that God motivates, this is what he's trying to show us. The whole point of the law was to show us you cannot do this in your own strength, so stop trying. Submit and surrender to Jesus and say, Lord, thank you that you did this for me and on my behalf. And now in my relationship, in the vine, in John 15, that I am in the vine. And when I'm in the vine, the Bible says when I'm connected, I'm, not, I'm the branch, not the vine. But when I'm connected to the branch as the vine, I will produce fruit. See, the, whole, the concept is I can't produce fruit. I can only be connected to the vine, and because I'm connected to the vine, that's when I produce fruit. It's phenomenal how it works. 
The more you lean into, Jesus, I just want to be with you. I love you. I'm so thankful that you have loved me. And I surrender and I submit my heart and my life and my plans to you. When we do that, God works through us in power. Dallas Willard said this in his book, Renovations of the Heart. He says, the external manifestation of Christ-likeness is not the focus of Christian spiritual formation. You hear that? The external manifestation is not the focus. When outward forms of behaviors are made the main emphasis, the process will be defeated, falling into deadening legalism. It's, it's, it's frightening what happens when we lean into, I'm going to be like Jesus. Stop it. <laughs> stop. Your, your pastor said on the service before Easter Sunday, stop trying to be like Jesus. Put that on Twitter and see what kind of trouble we get in as a church, Right? But I hope you understand what I'm saying. By, if you want to be like Jesus, stop focusing on the external manifestations and focus on the internal. And this is what Jesus said. He said of the Pharisees, he said on the outside, man, they're beautiful. They're beautiful, just like, a, just like a, 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 a tombs. He says, just like tombs on the outside, they're landscape, they're beautiful. On the inside, they're full of dead men's bones and they stink. They're full of rot. They're full of decay. It's nothing pretty. It's nothing you want to be a part of. And I don't know if you've, I, this was my experience. I would find myself in churches, especially as I rose in leadership and, and walked into leadership circles and took on roles in the church. And I have served in every single role you can imagine. I've said this before. I, I've, I've been everything from the kids' church pastor to I've been the discipleship pastor. I've been uh, singles pastor. I've been the associate pastor and the, and the assistant pastor. And I still don't know the difference between an associate pastor and an assistant pastor. And I was both of them. But I understand kind of the role, but here's my point. In all of that, when I would rise to that place, I would see the clay feet of the leaders around me, and, and the worst of it was always people who on the outside had it figured out and could talk the language and do the lingo, lingo and be that person on a Sunday morning. But after they left church on a Sunday morning, the way they treated their families, the way they treated their kids, the way they treated the wait staff at the restaurant they went to after church was horrific, and it was anything but Jesus. And the reason why, I'm, I'm convinced, the reason why that happened is because there was a, such a focus on the external and not the internal. And Jesus said, I'm coming after something specifically. I want to go after the inside. The branches were never supposed to focus on producing fruit, or, which is good works. They were asked to remain with the vine so they could bear fruit. They didn't have to produce it. You don't have to produce it. And I've said this about reaching people for Jesus. You don't have to go do something for Jesus. You don't, if you try to come up with a plan for your own, if you're like, I'm going to go show people Jesus, you are going to get yourself in trouble. But if you say, Jesus, what are you doing already? What are you doing? What's, what's your life? This is what he tried to show the disciples and, and the methods that we need to follow. He said, I hear my father and I say it. I see my father doing it and I do it. What was he saying? He's like, I am not coming here doing this of my own accord. He submitted himself. He became lowly, the Bible said. He gave up heaven. He gave up so many things and he submitted himself to the father, even to the point where in this, in this earthly role, he said, I don't know the time when I'm coming back. The father alone knows that. He submitted himself to that and humbled himself to that like you and I. Even though he was perfect in every way, he still humbled himself. And he operated in the same way that you and I are supposed to operate. Because if he did it through the, through the strength of the fact that he was the son of God, he has no right to ask you and I to do what he did. You understand that? It's a powerful, powerful understanding. When we look at Jesus, here's what we so often do. We do this with the apostles. We put them on a pedestal. It's one reason why I make fun of Peter so much. He's 
One, he's so easy to make fun of because he's so like us. But that's the point. The Bible doesn't hide people's faults and problems and brokenness. Go read the, the story of King David. You talk about a, a broken man in so many ways, right? Find a commandment he didn't violate. It's difficult, right? And yet God said, this is a man after my own heart. Why? Because the moment God would come to him, when the prophet comes and risks his life and tells him what he did and the sin he was involved in, the first thing he does is he repents. He says, I I recognize I'm trying to be a king, trying to be something without you in it, and and it's impossible. All all I'm going to be is a good king. But if I'm going to be the king that you've called me to be, if I'm going to walk into the identity you've called me to be, to submit my heart, I have to submit my life, I have to submit every aspect of my life to him and what he's doing. So we have to be like Jesus in character. We have to learn to be like him, but the way you do that is you're with him and let him work on the inside, changing you from the inside. Because here's what will happen. He'll talk to you about subtle things. You'll, you'll, you'll get it right. You'll go, you know, I'm reading my Bible on a regular basis and I'm praying on a regular basis and I'm going to church as often as I can and I'm, I'm giving some money and I'm, you know, I care about people and before you know it, you're that second son who's working in the field so hard that you don't even know who your father is because you don't have time to spend with him. You're too busy doing the works. And all Jesus is saying is not that the works don't need to be done. They do. And he's calling you and I to do them. He's just calling us to do them from the identity of our relationship with him and not in some form or fashion, somehow we're going to do the works that he's called us to do to get him to love me or get him to approve of me. And when you really get with Jesus, you'll feel that. You'll go, you know, I feel like I'm doing some of these things for all the wrong reasons. And Jesus is like, bingo. Now we're actually getting somewhere. And I can really, really change you from the inside out. So Jesus wants us to be like him in competence. What does that look like? John 14, 12 says, Truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. If you believe in Jesus, if you placed your trust in Jesus, if you are a disciple of Jesus, this is what he says about you. You will do the works he's done. So competency is about not just his character and his morality and, and who he was and his identity with the Father, but also doing the things that he do. He do. <laughs> I, love, I love the testimony Renetta had this uh, about, you know, Totsky just praying. Totsky's like, I'm not asking God to heal. He commanded healing. Why? Because Jesus said, go and heal the sick. He didn't say, go and pray for them to be healed, that I'll work in them. That's not what he said. He said, you are a disciple. All authority has been given to me. I've given it to you. Now go and make disciples, and this is what you're going to do. You're going to do the same things that I did. You are going to heal the sick. The Bible says you're going to raise the dead. All kinds of the things that he did. And he goes on, he says, some of the things, you're going to actually do more than the things that I've done. So does that mean, you know, well, only a select few get to do those things? The only reason a select few get to do those things is because people believe only a select few get to do those things. The moment we get it in our heart and our head, I'm not qualified to do them in my own strength. But when I know who I am in Christ and I know the authority that God has given me, I speak truth into people's life. I speak power into people's life. I speak it into my own life, and I see God begin to change me. He says, greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Something's happening. It's not a mistake that Jesus went back to the Father and sent the Spirit of God into our hearts and our lives. 
It looks like something. Hearing his voice. We talked about this last week. It's a great message on hearing the voice of God, how to understand how it works inside of Scripture, how God's never going to, he's going to speak outside of the Bible, but he's never going to speak against the Bible. Understanding that helps you hear the, the, the logos, the written word of God, and the rhema, the now word of God that speaks into your life. Listen to this, this uh, Scripture. This is about the gifts, another way he works in us. This is 1 Corinthians 12, 7, and I'm just going to kind of combine a bunch of passages here together. He says, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. He said, look, I'm giving the manifestations of my Spirit as gifts to people. They're going to work in them. Do they always reside on you? Can I just, you know, can I just pull them out of thin air? Can I just go do that? I I don't know that you you necessarily can, but I know this. Smith Wigglesworth, who was one of the great revivalist preachers of the early 1900s, he said, when the Holy Spirit doesn't move me, I move him. And all he meant by that was, he said, I know what God's called me to, and I'm not trying to force God's hand. I just know that if I don't feel a manifestation, that I get into that place in my heart my mind where I say, God, I need you to move in power, and I am available. Here am I. Send me to do your works. And that's what he's talking about. But listen to this passage. That the Spirit is given for the common good. Words of wisdom, words of knowledge, faith, gifts of healing, the effecting of miracles. These are available to us, and we so often don't walk in them. Prophecy, distinguishing of spirits, various kinds of tongues and interpretations of tongues. And that we are all called to work in these. The Bible says it's as the Spirit moves, as He moves into us. What does that look like? It looks like what just happened a minute ago when Renetta came and gave a prophetic testimony or a prophetic, uh, sorry, a, a testimony. And my wife gets up right after that and she says, hey, look, uh, I'm sorry, um, Alan's wife gets up right after And she says, hey, if God would do that for Renetta, and the Bible says he's no respecter of persons. In other words, he's not going to honor Renetta more than he's going to honor you. He's not going to want to bless her more than he wants to bless you. If that's the case, then a testimony is a prophetic word to all of us that what he did for Renetta, he will do for you and I too. But I don't believe God will do that. Well, then you're never going to see it. And that's scary, that, that God would al- allow himself to be limited. And he will in this world. There's coming a day, the Bible said, when every knee, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. There's coming a day where you don't get an option to say no to God. Those days have passed. You have to make a decision now in your submission. And, and you don't get to do it then. You have to do it now. And that's, again, part of the, what the gospel speaks to. But there's this passage not too far after the one I just read in 1 Corinthians 14. He says, but one who prophesies strengthens others, encourages them, and comforts them. So, so just recently I was sharing some wisdom with someone. Karen and I were ministering into somebody's life. And, you know, we're doing, we're praying, we're seeking the Lord, going, Lord, what have you said in the past? What are the, what, your ways we take, you know, 30 years of ministry and discipleship and, and having been discipled and discipling others, we try to speak into people's lives in, in the best way we possibly can. And it's helpful. It's not that it's not helpful. I love those things. But we prayed, and my wife says, hey, let's pray at the end of this. Oh, there's a thought. What if we just invited God even deeper into the scenario, right? <laughs> so, God, we've done everything we know to do. Is there anything else that, that maybe you want to do? And she prayed. And as she started praying for this person, I had a picture in my head. And, and, you know, we, we, we get weird about that. We go, oh, if you're not careful, that's going to make a mess. It does make a mess. Go read the whole chapter, whole book of 1 Corinthians. Gifts make a mess all the time. I've been in Pentecostal charismatic circles for 30 years, and it's more mess than not mess some days. But here's what I know, that maturity is what Paul spoke into the Corinthian church. He says the gifts are in you, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says you're not lacking in any spiritual gift, and I love that about you. But 
He said, I want you to grow up in the spiritual gifts. I want you to manifest the gifts the way Jesus taught us to do this, with his character, not selfishly, not not trying to make a show of yourself, not doing it immaturely, none of those things. Within the nature and the character of God, this is what he's trying to speak, maturity in the competency of his gifts and the power of God moving in our life. We think so often that that it's just about the character of a believer. And when we do that, what we do is we make someone a very strong believer who has almost no impact in other people's lives. And God's saying, I I love what I'm doing in you, but I want to do more than just in you. I want to do something through you. I literally called you on mission when I saved you. Why didn't you go to be with Jesus when you got saved? Because you're not going to be any more saved than the day you got saved. So it's not about that. It's not, hey, it's fine. God will grow you up in maturity. But your qualification for heaven has never and will never be about the things you have done. And one reason I know that, well, you know, the Bible. But besides that, the other part of it is this one specific passage where Jesus talks about these these two other men on the side of him. And this one guy makes a proclamation of who Jesus is. In other words, trusts in him and believes in him. And when he does this, this is what happens. Jesus said, today you're going to be with me in paradise. The other one, not so much, right? But he says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. That guy never went to a Bible study. As far as we know, never spoke in tongues. As far as we know, never did anything, anything other than believe and trust in Jesus in the last few minutes of his life. Jesus tells a parable about that, that some people start early, early in the day, and he promises them a wage. He promises them something for that. And then he goes and he hires people at the end of the day. And when he hands out what he said and what he's, he honored everybody with, what he said he was going to give them, the people who've been working all day long got mad. Jesus literally says in this parable, he says, it's my money, and you agreed to submit and surrender to this plan. You don't get to tell me what I can do with this person that I hired at the end of the day. That, my friends, is grace. Karen and I, I've shared this story many times. Her, her dad, we moved here 12 years ago and became pastors here at DCF, and we loved, we love our city, we love you guys, but one of the beautiful things that God did for us was to give us time and a season with her dad to build relationship and get to know him, where so many times we'd just come and visit. We were, lived two miles from him, we're over there all the time. It was awesome, but Ray was a piece of work. <laughs> I love Ray, I love Ray, but he, was, he could be challenging sometimes, and Karen will tell you the same thing. In the last month of his life, he ends up in the hospital, and he's, he's, he, we know he doesn't have much or long to live. And his, his friend and also lawyer, Alan Mitchell, goes and visits him in the hospital and, and says, Hey, Ray, you know, um, since we're talking about Jesus, would you like to make Jesus Lord of your life? And Ray says, Yeah, I think I would. And he prays with him, and he gives his life to Jesus. And we're like, What about the 30 years that we spent laboring in the, in the sun with Ray? What about that? We, we never said that at all. My wife and I were so overjoyed, so overjoyed, and so thankful that we have a friend like Alan who loves Jesus at least as much as us, maybe more, (laughs) and whose heart was for our relative just as much as our heart was for Ray. And this is the picture. It's not about how much you do, because if if you get jealous of how much you do, then you misunderstand and think it's about how much you do. That's the point of that parable. Does that make sense? Because that challenges me. 
When, and those attitudes, when they pop up, they come up. And if, when I spend time with Jesus, he wants to sort that stuff out and go, I don't want to just talk about what you do on the external. I want to come to the motivation and the depth of your heart. And when you do that, listen, when you pray for somebody and they get healed, you don't walk around going, look at the blue sparks that fly off of my fingertips, right? <laughs> you say, God, I am so thankful of what you're doing through me. Would you increase that? Lord, I'd love to see more people healed. I'd love to see more people saved. Lord, I'd love to see more of your power come into the earth. Lord, I'd love you to, for, for you to work through that, work through me in that. So Jesus calls us in these competencies, leadership. Discipleship is about leadership. I had people come and go, can I just be discipled, not be a leader? No, you can't. So if you don't want to be a leader, you can't be a disciple. You know how I know? Jesus said, you, I want you. This is my command to you, my commission. He only gave one commission in the entire time he was here. He gave one. You go and make disciples. Because I have all authority now, and I've paid the price. I've done everything that's necessary. I've modeled it. I've shown you. I've died on the cross. I've paid the price that you could never pay. I've, I've fulfilled the law. Now, this is what I, I want you to do. You go make disciples. We have to understand, and we have to really get this at the core of who we are, that you have a responsibility to be on mission for your king. You have to understand that. And if you think Jesus is just something that you added to your life, you do not understand discipleship. Discipleship is a submission, saying, God, I will grow as a leader. I'll learn. I will learn how to be a disciple so that I can learn how to make disciples. Paul writes this to his, his, his disciple, Timothy, and he said, the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others also. Four generations of discipleship in that one passage in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. So what does that look like? Let me show you a slide. It's just a simple, I hate math, but this is Jesus math, so I like this part, right? I like this kind of math. This is exponential discipleship making. So what does that look like? If, if, if you disciple eight people in your lifetime, I hope you do it more than that, but if in your lifetime you disciple eight people, and those eight people disciple six others, and each of those folks disciple four others, you end up being responsible for a legacy of 248 disciples being made because you were obedient to Jesus. What would it look like if you said, God, I believe you have qualified me, not just to be a disciple, but to go and make them. It's powerful. So let me just show you something, a couple of ways that this can happen. Here's a slide. It's just helpful to see this character and competencies put together and what they look like. So if you have a low skill competency or low skill, which is competency, and low character, you're going to be irrelevant. So as you see that, if you're in that bottom left-hand corner square, if you have low skill, low competency, and you have low character, you're, just, you're not going to matter. You're not going to make a difference in this world. What happens if you have low skill but you have high character, which is what a lot of Christians are? You are going to be limited. Your impact and ability to make disciples is going to be incredibly limited. What if you have high skill and low character, which some people have, right? It makes you dangerous because you attempt to use it for selfish gain. That was what was happening in the Corinthian church. And Paul addressed it, and he went after them with a vengeance. He said, you don't get to do this. This is not what the church of Jesus looks like. I want to challenge you on that. But lastly, what would happen if you have high competency and high character? And the answer is, you will be fruitful. You're going to walk in power. You're going to walk in understanding. You're going to walk in wisdom. You're never going to be doing it for selfish reasons, so you're not going to be dangerous. It's a powerful thing. So I said making disciples like Jesus that look like. That's, that's character and competency. 
What about making disciples like Jesus? In other words, his methods, what did that look like? He made he made disciples in a very specific way. He called 12 people. He brought them all together. He spent three years with them. They were really challenging people, all right? And then he, he, he gives 72, and he says, I want you to go out, and, but I don't want you to go out alone. I want you to go out at least two by two. In other words, don't ever do this discipleship thing by yourself. If you are discipling people by yourself, you're going to get yourself in trouble. Jesus' method was don't do that. He sends the 72 out in Two te- in teams of two, and they go out, and he talks about what that looks like. It's in passage uh, in the passage in Luke chapter 10. He says, after this, the Lord appointed 70 and sent them into pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. See, that's the picture. Jesus says, I'm coming to that person's life, so I'm sending you there. I'm already coming there. I've made plans to come to so-and-so's life. I need you to go there ahead of me and prepare the way. This is what he's saying. He goes on. He says, the harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are few. Beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Don't pray for the harvest. Why would you do that? It's already there. Pray for laborers. Be a laborer. Verse 5 says, whatever house you enter, say, peace be this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you for the laborers worthy of his wages. And listen to this. Don't keep moving from house to house. I go to the same coffee house all the time. There are other coffee houses in the city. I don't think they're as good, but I'm just, you know, like that. I have a preference. <laughs> but that's not the main reason I go. I would endure bad coffee if God told me to go to another coffee house. And here's why I go to the same one. Because I build relationships there with people who don't know Jesus. Do you know how hard it is for a pastor, a pastor to make relationships with people who don't know Jesus? But here's how it goes. I say, hey, how's it going? Oh, this, oh it's good. So um, what do you do for a living? Uh, I'm a pastor. Oh, I'm so sorry for all the cuss words I just said in the previous three sentences. I'm like, I don't care. (laughs) I used to cuss like that too. There's a reason I don't now, right? (laughs) So here's my point. It's challenging. So Jesus says when you go to a house and there's a person of peace there, and we're going to talk about these strategies as we move forward and become more missional as a church. When you do this, he said, hang out there. Eat, Eat what they give you. In other words, there are going to be people who want to serve you and we have been taught by the seeker-sensitive movement so much so that we need, that they've, been, they've been teaching us that we have to always have invitation. It's always got to be, you've got to be super careful with these people because they're, they're fragile. Do you see how Jesus was fragile with some people? Right? He's like, hey, be careful. Don't say mean things to Pharisees. Jesus said some of the hardest things in the world to Pharisees. And from some of those statements, we're like, well, he, you know, he, just, he was so angry with their, I get it. But you know who Nicodemus was? He was a Pharisee. And he heard Jesus say some hard things, and it forced him to take a fresh look at himself. Can you imagine that you are the best disciple in Jesus' bunch, at least you think so, and so you have this great revelation that he's the Christ, and he celebrates you in front of the whole group, small group, right? And then a few minutes later, you get it all wrong, and this is what he says to you. You are Satan. Now, I have a strong personality, and 30 years of ministry, I have never said to somebody in a small group that you are the devil. Have you? Jesus did to one of his best disciples. So my point is, you have to recognize that Jesus has a strategy that's different, so often different than the modern church. And the way we know is just get back to the methods that we see him do. There's a ton. I won't go into all the things that he talks about, about how to learn, how to recognize a person of peace. But here's, an, here's just one simple way you can do that is to introduce spiritual ideas into a conversation to see if God is working in a person's life. What does that look like? 
well, I guess this is just my lot in life. You heard that recently? And I say, maybe. Maybe not. I used to think that. Really. I used to think that until Jesus came into my life. Oh, it's a beautiful day. I think I'm going to walk over here. <laughs> right? No worries. It's not, it doesn't hurt my feelings. Like, okay, they're not ready to talk about Jesus. I have no problem with that. I've shared this story about a guy. He was discipling somebody and, and taking them on playing golf. And the guy said, man, I noticed your marriage is amazing. My marriage is horrible. What gives? How come your marriage is so my, amazing and mine's so terrible? And the guy looks at him and says, I can tell you but I'm going to drop the name of Jesus about 800 times in this conversation because he is the reason I have a good marriage and you don't. Would you still like to hear about my marriage? The guy thinks about it for a second and says, I think I would. Within three weeks, three months, that guy gave his life to Jesus and so did his wife. And they had a good marriage because the whole point was because Jesus came into his life, he quit being selfish. He learned how to no longer make everything about himself and that makes for a really good marriage. And you can't do that in your own strength. I know, I've tried. <laughs> so let me just kind of wrap this all up in this series too in three simple ways that we can duplicate and how we can make disciples, how we can do this. And it's found in Matthew 28, we know. It's go. Go and make, we have to be intentional. James 5.20 says, Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their ways will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. That's on you as you reach out and disciple people, because it is critical that you see your own personal responsibility to make disciples. This, was, this I promise you, will be the hardest thing you'll ever hear me say to you, because everything I say, is, it comes out of grace, and this does too, but it's still challenging. We all have a responsibility in our sphere of influence. Listen, I love that you guys invite people to church. I'm so thankful we have new people come to a service on a Sunday morning. Quite frankly, especially if they're, if they're people who don't know Jesus, why they would come to a church setting, I don't know. I, I wouldn't. <laughs> why would I go to church when I don't know anything about Jesus? It's like, what's, what does it look like? We're going to sing, you know, a bunch of songs and worship this, you know, Jesus. Okay. How long is that going to take? It's probably 20, 30 minutes. No, I'm good. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to do that. Why would they do that? But it, and we go into this mindset so often of the only way we can reach people is to invite them to church. And Jesus did not say, go into all the earth, right, and make invitations for church on Sunday morning, did he? Now, having said that, please invite people to service, especially next week, because a lot of people will come on Easter Sunday when they won't come any other time. So always do that. Always invite people into what God is doing. But here's my point. If we, don't, if we don't do this, what we think is everybody else is going to do it. We think the pastor's job is to reach people for Jesus. If I can just get them into the, into the sermon on a Sunday morning, they'll hear the gospel. And that's true. You're going to hear me preach the gospel every time I stand up here. But that's not what Jesus told us to do. He told us to go and make disciples. So let me just give you this, this really interesting thing in, in social psychology. There's this well-known scenario in 1964 it was a tragic murder of a 28-year-old woman in Queens, New York. Her name was Kitty Genovese, and it rocked the nation at the time because of what happened. Beyond the fact that a single woman was attacked and repeatedly stabbed by her attacker is tragic enough, but here's what made it so shocking to the nation. It's what didn't happen around her that was the greatest tragedy of all. From her first cry for help until her last breath, over 30 minutes passed, and not one of the 38 people who heard or witnessed the repeated attacks intervened or called the police until she was dead. 38 people witnessed it, and not a single person did anything. 
So they studied that. They were like, this can't, how did that happen? What, I mean, is that even possible? They actually did tremendous studies in the area of psychology, and they, they found this thing, and they discovered this thing from this, and things like it called the bystander effect. After repeated studies, this is what they found. that if They found that if people witness a tragedy alone, they are quick to respond. But if, on the other hand, a large number of people present, or present produces the opposite effect, if there's a bunch of people, they won't do it because there's a diffusion of responsibility. So hear, hear me. This is what's happening in the modern church. If you were the only one preaching Jesus, you would be preaching Jesus. You would be making disciples. I promise you, you would. Because you know it's your responsibility. But when we have everybody else in the church, and churches all around our city, the mindset is, well, I'm sure somebody's doing that. And we make excuses and we say, well, you know, I don't do that because I don't have the gift of evangelism. Jesus never said, go and make disciples if you have the gift of evangelism, did he? He said, if you're a disciple, you make disciples. This is how it works. So I'm not trying to beat you up, I promise you. You guys know this. I preach grace all the time. Last thing I want to beat you up, but the last thing I also want to do is leave you misunderstanding your responsibility that Jesus has given you to go and make disciples. This is your call. This is your responsibility. This is the mission that you are still here for. It's what Jesus called you into. The second thing is to baptize. Why did he say, go and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? And the church has made a big deal about, well, do we sprinkle them? Do we, you know, do we, do we do this? Listen, I, I understand the challenge, but we forgot baptize is not just about how it's done, but it's the fact that it's made public. That's what baptism was. It was a public display that you were being baptized into the teachings and the followings of someone. This is what Jesus said. Go and make disciples, and when you do, challenge them to take their faith public. Because if they're not willing to take their faith public, they might not have faith at all. I hear this all the time. People say this to me, and I smack it in the dirt. I try to be careful how I do it, but I smack it in the dirt every time. They're like, you don't, my faith is personal. I'll talk to them about the, my faith is personal. I'm like, no, it's not. I feel like elf. No, it's not. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not personal. Jesus said your faith is not personal. Why? Because if you have faith, the first thing you're supposed to do with it is invite all your friends and family and say, hey, everybody, I want you to see me go under this water. That's how we believe it, right? Go under this water and come, go in and, and, and be recognized in the death of Jesus and come back up in the life of Jesus. I want to make my faith public. So do that. Make your faith public. And when you lead somebody to Jesus, don't give them some kind of mindset that they can sneak into the kingdom of God. Don't do it. Say, man, you need to, Jesus said, count the cost before you become a disciple. Don't, don't come into this unless you count, and count the cost because there is a cost. He paid it all. We get that. But there's a cost. He said, carry your cross, not carry his cross. We get that mistaken and get out of grace and try to do things to save ourselves in our own cross. That's not what Jesus said. He said, your cross to carry ultimately is you're going to go public with your faith, and there are going to be some challenges that come from that. And I've had that happen in my life, and many of you guys have had that happen in your life. To be baptized is to identify with Jesus. I'm not going to read the scriptures because there's tons of them, but let me just, just kind of illustrate it with this. In the 1800s, there was, a, there was a French guy named Charles Blondin who decided to walk across the Niagara Falls, stretched this big rope, had guy lines all over the place, and he did this in front of presidents and senators and uh, kings and all kinds of people. He was a really interesting guy. And one of the things he did, this is just kind of his, his, his resume, if you will, he crossed Niagara itself over 300 times. 300 times he walked back and forth, more than 10,000 miles on that rope, crossing over. 
He was 73 when he died. And just two or three years before that, he walked across that road. So phenomenal guy. So this is a picture. I got a picture up here of Blondin carrying his manager, Harry Cockard, across across the, the rope, because he came back and he said, hey, do you, how many of you guys believe I can cross this rope? And I've shared this before. And, and people said, oh, yeah, absolutely. We saw you do it. He's like, how many really believe? Oh, yeah, absolutely. He says, come get on my back. One time he did it with a wheelbarrow. You believe in me? Come and get in the wheelbarrow. Nope. <laughs> but people actually did, and he took people across that rope. He took this guy, his, his manager, across, the, across this rope on his back. But here's what's so powerful. What he said to him is so enlightening. Listen to this. This is the, these are the instructions he gave him right before he started walking across the rope. He said, Harry, look up. You are no longer Harry Calcord. You are Charles Blondin. In other words, you're me. Until I clear this place, be a part of me, mind, body, and soul. If I sway, sway with me. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself. If you do, we will both fall to our death. Man, if that's not a picture of an invitation from Jesus, I don't, not the last part. He already died and came back to life, so we don't have to worry about that. But the picture is this. Jesus is saying, if you'll come and be a part of me, be connected in the vine. If you will do this, what's going to happen is you are going to walk with me and sway with me. And the thing that you could never do without me, you'll be doing it with me the whole time. You're doing it because you're here with me. You're on my back. But you know what? Look, here we are together doing this thing. Francis Chan said this. He said, we were told to go and make disciples, but we often just sit and make excuses. <laughs> he's, he's challenging God to listen to. 1 Corinthians 11, 1 says, imitate me. I've read this. Just as I also imitate Christ. And really what the, the Great Commission was about was Jesus saying, go and finish what I started. A.W. Tozer said, only a disciple can make a disciple. We can't make what we're not. So let me wrap it up with this scripture. I read it and close the series with this. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. He came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. So go and make followers, make disciples, make students of all people in the world. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything that I've commanded. And he says, I'm going to be with you to the ends of the ages. So the last thing he does is he's going to teach us. He's going to show us. He's going to help us do it. We don't have to come up with a plan of our own. He's already done that. So listen, I just want to say it this way. Um, we've been, last night we had an awesome leadership meeting. We talked about all the prophetic words over who we are as a church. And so we listed them all, and they're phenomenal. I could go through them with you over coffee. It takes a little time, but some of the promises are so astounding about how, how clear and how perfectly set up. And one of the last ones was at a, at a, a, a service in Greenville. A, a pastor from that church came and spoke to Karen and I and knew nothing about where we are as a church, knew nothing about us, and just he gave us this like three-minute prophetic word that was so clear and so precise and so perfect, you can't, I, we just couldn't argue with it. We just cried. It was so powerful because God was saying again, I'm doing something and you guys are on track with me and I love it and it's exciting. It's exciting. And so we talked to the leadership team and said, listen, all of these passages, all, not just passages, but the promises from Scripture, but the prophetic words of it, all of what the Lord is saying, I'm going to explode here. I'm going to get ready, you know, on your mark, get, get set, go, because he, I'm, I'm coming. There's going to be an increase. There's going to be thousands. All these promises that God's going to bring this about. We're going to impact lives. We're going to change our city. All these promises are not empty promises, but they are dependent on something. Because Jesus didn't say, I'm going to do it. He did it. He said, I did this, and because I did this, that's what Matthew 28 starts with, because I have authority, 
and it's all been given to me. I did my work. I was here three years. I made disciples. I modeled it. I showed you how to do it. I, I explained it. I, I gave you pictures. I raised the dead. I healed the sick. I cast out demons. And then I preached the, the good news that God no longer holds your sin against you, just like he promised Abraham, that if you believe and trust in me, just like Abraham did, it would be accounted to you for righteousness. All the following of the law is wrapped up in what I accomplished on the cross. Everything's been done, except now you've been given a mission, the ministry of reconciliation. Why? Because you have been reconciled. And because you've been reconciled, I love this. We, we used to sing the song about the song of the redeemed. And I said, God, why don't you, you know, you sent angels as messengers. Why don't you do that? He goes, because what are they going to say? What could they say? They have not been redeemed the way you have. You have. Nobody can tell the story of reconciliation like someone who's been reconciled. So I want to tell you, I just want to encourage you. I want to challenge you. I want to kick you in the butt. Whatever I can do to get you moving, I just don't want to put you on a guilt trip because that's super not helpful. But I want to encourage us that God has already made all the promises. He said, I am there already, right? He, the way he said it, to put it in the scriptural context, he said, I want you to go somewhere that I'm coming. And the truth is, he's saying that because he's already there. So all these prophetic words about our church, all these prophetic words about you and the, your walk with Jesus and what he's called you to do, and all these promises are yes and amen in Jesus and in no other place. So everything that the Lord's promised you personally, everything he's promised us corporately, everything he's promised us as a nation, is dependent upon something. Not on our works of doing something to try to get God to love us, but on the fact that God has already done it all, and now he has all the authority, and he has given us the authority and a mission. He won't give a mission without authority, and he's not going to give authority without a mission. So you and I have been called to this mission to be ministers of reconciliation, to go into the world and say this. Because when I, when I understood the gospel, and I understood that I could really say to somebody, your sins are no longer held against you. That is only a song that a redeemed, a redeemed person can sing. So I want to encourage you. This is what God has called us to. And it is exciting. You don't have to come up with it. Are you going to step out a little bit? Are you going to screw it up? Yes, you're going to screw it up. What makes you think you wouldn't? You're human, right? But in your failings, you're going to get up again. You're going to do what the disciples did with Jesus. You're going to get it wrong. Jesus is going to challenge you and invite you in. And you're going to change and you're going to be transformed because you're connected to him and you're going to hear his voice. And you're going to walk in power and you're going to walk in wonder and you're going to see people come to know Jesus. And when we all get to heaven, however many disciples you made, you're going to look back over a crowd of people and all the people that you, because you spoke life into them, they didn't die. They live in forever with Jesus, living forever with us. And that's the beauty. That's the beauty of not just Jesus sharing this ministry of reconciliation, but sharing this beautiful place of, I got to speak to that person and bring life into them and help them understand who Jesus was. That is on me. And I love that. Why don't you stand? Thank you guys so much. I know I preached a little bit long some of these messages. Um, it's so challenging. If I could, I, I can't explain how challenging it is to make a message short. That wasn't the problem when I first started preaching. <laughs> I preached five minutes ago. That's all I got. <laughs> I hope it was enough. It wasn't. It was there. 
But now it's just trying to get it all of everything that's inside of my heart that God's saying to us personally and saying to you and encouraging you and reminding you who God says you are and getting your identity in him. And when we get this, man, we're going to be off to the races and it's going to be glorious. We're going to see some incredible things coming in the future and I'm excited. Let me pray for us. So Jesus, thank you for this incredible ministry of reconciliation. Lord, first of all, thank you more than anything. Lord, that we have been reconciled, that you made a way, Lord, where there wasn't a way. The price that I owed, Lord, and I realized it, I could never pay. I tried to pay it in my own works, in my own goodness, and it was just, I couldn't do it, Lord. And so, Lord, I just say thank you for reconciling me to yourself through what you did on the cross, that you suffered and died so that I didn't have to. And so, Jesus, I just say thank you for that. Lord, now I pray, would you encourage myself, would you encourage us as a body, would you remind us, Lord, that you have qualified us because of what you did on the cross. You have empowered us because you sent your spirit to live inside of us. Lord, you've given gifts to us. You've given leadership ability. You've given us all of these strengths, every bit of these things, Lord. You've given us for such a time as this in the season that we're in. So, Lord, would we go forth? Lord, will we sow in sorrow, you said, sow in tears. But, Lord, when we come back, we reap in joy. So, Lord, as we break through into this, God, would you make it so every Sunday is so exciting. We can't wait to be back the following Sunday. Lord, we pray for that because souls are coming to know you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.